Turn to the book of Titus, uh, third of and final week in our um, short but I think very uh, necessary uh, sermon series through the book of Titus, which we titled The Church in Order. And uh, this week as we wrap up our time in Titus, we, we started a couple weeks ago, and remember Paul is writing to Titus this pastoral uh, letter, uh, encouraging and exhorting him, this is your to put the church in order. And he begins to lay out what that looks like. And he talks about leadership in the church, and we talked about that two weeks ago in Titus 1 last week, what we as the church, how we interact and engage with one another, what it looks like uh, for you and I uh, to, to share life with one another. And then this week, which will force us to look outward and how we as a church engage the world. And so I'm going to contend, I'm going to argue that where Paul is going to move Titus is around this idea right here this morning, loved ones, that you and I, that we would live in a way that elevates God's mercy, recalling what he has rescued us from. Let me say that again, that you and I would live in a way that elevates God's mercy, recalling what he has rescued us from, that you and I are spared from the wrath of God, that you and I are spared from the judgment of God, that we are not alienated from God. So in this big picture, broad sense, that we've been rescued and we realize what God has rescued us from, but also in a, in a more specific sense that we realize the various aspects of our life that God is changing us and conforming us to his image and causing us to look more and more like himself. So here we go, Titus 3. I'm going to read uh, the entire chapter and then we'll pray and begin to walk through this just incredible text. Here's what Paul writes to Titus and what God would have for you and I this morning, loved ones. God's word tells us this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, listen to these next few verses, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That, loved ones, is awesome. In fact, so awesome, I'm going to read it again. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And then starting in verse 12, Paul moves into his, uh, really the closing or conclusion of the letter, and he writes this, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Why don't you join me as we pray and ask God to open our hearts and our minds to the truth of his word here. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We thank you. Uh, for this day, God, we thank you for the the, the glorious truths um, that we get to uh, be reminded of and to talk of and and worship through this morning. And God, we pray, we pray that you uh, would remind us. <clears throat> And that you would cause us to remember just the depths and the greatness of your gospel work. We pray that your spirit would have the freedom to move and work in and amongst us. That, that, that whatever it is that's going on in our life that you want to engage or address or encourage or push us on, whatever it may be, that Lord, you would have the freedom to do so. God, not only for us, and we pray for Justin Edgar. And for Crossroads Fellowship, thank you for that body of believers and pray that you would be moving and working in them, accomplishing your great work for your glory in that church. And God, for us, as we walk through this text, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us insights? Would you help us to be the men and women that you call us to be, to, to be a church that is on mission uh, because we are so overwhelmed by your gospel work on our behalf. So Jesus, come and have your way with us now. We pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is An Ordered Mission. An ordered mission. In the church, in order, we saw ordered leadership. Uh, we saw an ordered church. And now we have this idea, this concept around an ordered mission. And, and chapter 3 is, is very missional in its outworking. It, it's Paul exhorting Titus, hey, this is what the church looks like. This is how we function in society so as to, to make the gospel known. And so, so this has direct correlation, direct application in our lives in terms of when you walk out of here and how you function uh, every day of the week and how you function at work and how you function in your neighborhood, well, he's going to prescribe for us, this is what this looks like. And so four things I want to highlight in the text this morning, and we're going to spend uh, really all of our time in verses 1 through 11. I really won't go into Paul's final instructions and greetings there. Uh, but I, I want to spend our time looking at verses 1 through 11 around these four ideas of an ordered mission. And notice this first of all in verse 1 and 2, that an ordered mission reminds us of our responsibilities. An ordered mission reminds us of our responsibilities. Paul says this to Titus, remind them, remind the church, and then he lists seven different things here. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, I know all of us don't struggle with any of that, so let's just move on. Yeah, right. That's not happening. Um, an ordered mission reminds us of our responsibilities. This is how God calls us to be a witness to a lost, broken, and dying world around us. 
And so let's just talk about each of these here for a few minutes. The first thing he says here is remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. He's referencing the government. Now I want you to notice what Paul does and doesn't do. He's comprehensive in that he tells us to submit to rulers and authorities, but he is not at all specific outside of that. He doesn't mention any particular level of government. He doesn't uh, mention any specific uh, individuals in the government. There's no particular official, uh, government official, that, hey, you got to be uh, submissive to this guy, but not to that one. In fact, there's no exception whatsoever in Paul's statement. It is comprehensive that you and I are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Let's just be honest about this. I mean, you start talking about government and people get uncomfortable. Right, we don't like talking about government because we all have very strong opinions. And it's kind of like, oh, man, is he going to start talking about government? Well, you know what they say. There's two things you shouldn't talk about. What are they? Religion and politics. Let's talk about both. How about that? Okay. Let's just break every social taboo and go after it because that's what we have going on in the text. It says we're to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And I think what we want to do, right, is we want to try to separate our connection between the political, and the spiritual, but the scriptures don't let us do that. In fact, you remember Jesus in Matthew 22? Now, of course, this is a little bit different because the religious leaders were trying to trap him and they wanted to back him into a corner. And so they come up to him and honestly, it's a brilliant question that they ask him. And they go, tell us, right? Well, they kind of butter Jesus up at first. Hey, good teacher, we know that you're good. And they're just like buttering him up. And of course, he sees right through it. And, and they go, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Which is a brilliant question because if he goes, yes, then like, well, you've just aligned yourself to the Roman government and, and you have no say in spiritual matters. And of course, if he says no, then he's undermining the, the, the government. They're like, well, you don't even abide by the government. But see, this isn't just any man, is it? This is Jesus. And he sees right through it and he's like, bring me a coin. Hand him a coin and can't you just see him kind of looking at it? He goes, hey, whose likeness is on this? Caesar's. And then in just this beautiful stroke of genius, Jesus goes, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And it tells us afterwards that they're like, hey, we're done. We're just done trying to trap this guy. Doesn't work, right? But he, here's what's important about that is what Jesus didn't say is he didn't say, yeah, I know that the tax is unfair. He didn't talk about the issue of, yeah, I get it that they're committing idolatry with their Caesars and they worship him as a God and they should only be worshiping me. He, he didn't say, I get that the government is unfair and oppressive and hostile. He didn't say, I know that they're not going to use this for righteous means. What he said is you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and you give to God what is God's. And of course, Romans 13 is very clear for us in terms of the response, um, uh, 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 our response to the role of government in our lives. Right? Here's what he's saying. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. And you might say, well, I mean, I mean, our government, our government is broken and flawed because it is run by broken and flawed individuals. Now, I'll say this, as broken and as flawed as our government is, you go spend some time in other countries and you will find an increasing appreciation for our very broken and flawed government, okay? Um, here's what I think is also helpful. The New Testament was not written in a political age of governmental utopia, okay? The Roman government had some serious issues, 
And, and, and they were far from a perfect model of government leadership. And yet what you see throughout the New Testament is it affirms the idea of submitting to a government that, ironically enough, will eventually be the same government that will seek to destroy Christians. See, what Paul is exhorting Titus on here is, listen, this is how we're distinct. Because people will fight authorities that they don't like. But as followers of Christ, we're going to be different. This is part of our witness to the world is that we're submissive to rulers and authorities, even those who are unfair, unjust, hostile, or oppressive towards us. Secondly, he tells us to be obedient. Now, in a generic sense, of course we're obedient. I found this interesting. The Greek word here actually has a very civil connotation to it. It's tied to this previous phrase. It's actually obedience towards a magistrate. And so again, it's this idea that we're obeying the government or the laws of the land. Thirdly, he tells them to be ready for every good work. To be ready for every good work. This is a reference to a preparedness where you and I are both sincerely and eagerly looking to serve those around us. Regardless of how friendly um, or hostile they have been towards us. Is that we treat one another and we treat those outside the community of faith as well as those inside the community of faith with goodness. And not only do we treat them that way, but we are ready to do so. I wonder if you and I are ready to do a good work. We think about readiness in the scriptures. Most of us probably go to 1 Peter 3 where Peter talks about always being prepared or always being ready to make a offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And, and, and that's appropriate for us to go to that place. But I wonder if we know what Peter goes on to say right after that. He says this, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, listen to what he says, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He's connecting this idea of gospel sharing with preparation and readiness. That we're ready for every good work. Are you ready for every good work? Are you ready? Are you mentally preparing yourself, wrapping your mind around this reality that God has called us to live in a particular manner, a particular way, to be ready for every good work? Are you spiritually preparing yourself for every good work? Do you ask God for opportunities? Are you praying about it? God, would you help me to be ready? Anyone in here know who John Wooden is? Raise your hand if you know who John Wooden is. Okay, some of you. Let me educate the rest of you. John Wooden is the greatest coach that's ever lived. Anyone that tells you otherwise doesn't know what they're talking about, okay? Let me just help you out on this. Greatest coach ever. And you can just look at the resume. Guy wins championships like they're going out of style. Now, John Wooden also loved Jesus and was quotable in all kinds of different ways. One of my all-time favorite Wooden quotes is he says this. He says, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. See, a readiness implies that I'm thinking of this outside of the moment, that we don't show me like, oh man, I wish I would have thought about what I was going to do when this happened. It's the whole point that we're thinking of this prior to it happening. Are we ready for every good work? Am I ready to extend grace and forgiveness when I'm maligned? Am I ready to share the gospel when the opportunity presents itself? Am I ready to... um, Give or to share generously with someone in need. Ready for every good work. 
Right Again, being reminded this is who we are. And let's be challenged in these because the truth is we're not all of these things, but we need to hear this reminder. Fourthly, he says this, um, part of our responsibility is that we speak evil of no one. Speaking evil of no one. Don't you love how the scriptures can be so broad and comprehensive and so sharp and pointed at the same time? Because he didn't say, hey, you can't speak evil of other Christians. Speaking evil of no one. Think of the most despicable person you know. Think of someone who has hurt you deeply. Think of someone who has failed you miserably. Have you spoken evil of them? Have you railed against them? Have you reviled them? Now look at the text. Speak evil of no one. Now he's not saying that we can't be honest. But that's very different than speaking evil of someone. Either they're not present, or I speak about them in a reviling manner, or maybe I even listen to others who are doing this. That we speak evil of no one. I got to tell you, I got to tell you that I, I, I find it both shocking and appalling what Christians will say about other people. I mean, honestly, at times it's downright embarrassing. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just scroll through your Facebook feed. And if you can go for more than 90 seconds, congratulations, you've done something that most people can't do. I don't know what it is about sitting behind a screen and a keyboard that in our mind, I'm, I'm no longer speaking to another person created in the image of God, but I'm speaking to some entity. And we've done that now for the last decade or so. And now it just carries over into, I can be face to face with someone else. And we'll speak evil of them. This is tragic, loved ones, that we would speak so disparage, disparagingly or critically of others as believers. This is not who we're to be, right? Speak evil of no one. Let you run with that, whatever God is speaking into your life on that. He tells us also to avoid quarreling. This is the idea, I think, is very much tied to this speaking evil of no one, but there's the, 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 we're not contentious with others. And again, the context is believers towards non-believers. Right? It's missional in its outworking. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it fair? Is it fair to expect someone who does not have the Spirit of God living inside of them to act like they have the Spirit of God living inside of them? I mean, not only is it not fair, it's just kind of dumb, isn't it? There's nothing reasonable about that. I don't expect my 10-year-olds to act like they're 25. Why? Because they're not. Of course, I also don't expect them to act like four-year-olds either. (laughs) But we do this, don't we? We look at non-believers and we impose this expectation. Well, you know what? You should act like you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. A lot of times you and I don't live like we have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And so let me just state this imperatively. I'll go so far as to say that you and I have no right. We have no right to be hostile, malicious, or contentious with others who are not followers of Jesus because they don't adhere to a biblical worldview. That's what he's talking about with, with, with avoiding quarreling. 
Now, I get where there's this temptation for us to look at the world and we go, well, we look at lost people or pagans or whatever term we want to ascribe to them, and there's this temptation to go, well, they're ruining our country. No, sin is ruining our country. And you and I are ruining our country too. We're part of the problem. All right? But for us to sit here and to assume that, in fact, let me... John MacArthur had a great great quote on this particular concept. He says this, If God so limitlessly and unconditionally loved the world that he sent his sinless son to redeem it, how can we as sinful recipients of his redeeming grace be callous and loveless towards those who have not yet received it? Ouch. That one's kind of piercing, isn't it? So we avoid quarreling. Sixth, we're told to be gentle. It's this idea that you and I have this sweet reasonableness that we give people the benefit of the doubt that we assume the best of them. Uh, Finally, in verse two, he says that we show perfect courtesy toward all people. And this is not some fabricated concern that I show or extend towards someone else because, hey, I might get something in return for this. No, it's a legitimate care and concern for others that has no regard of of what benefit I may or may not derive from this. But an ordered mission, right, where Paul begins with Titus is he reminds us of our responsibilities. Loved ones, that list is an optional. That's not something that, hey, if we feel like it, It works for us. When I get around to it, this is a biblical imperative. This is a biblical mandate as followers of Jesus. And and that's not exhaustive. There are other things that could end up on that list. But at the very least, this is what God is calling us to. Secondly, an ordered mission remembers our former condition. An ordered mission remembers our former condition. Look at verse 3. He says this, For we ourselves... And he begins to list these different items. And in fact, this list, very interestingly, is almost a one-to-one correlation and contrast of what we see in verses 1 through 2. Look at what he says. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Not exactly a list of affirmation or let's see how great we are. All right? Um, We are remembering our former condition. I want you to make note of a couple things in this. First of all, I want you to make note of the fact that Paul includes himself in this list. He's saying this is true of all of us. Right? He's talking to Titus, you guys, them, you. We all were this. Now, your specific list might look a little bit different. But the general sinfulness is all the same. That we're reminded of our messiness, that we're reminded of our brokenness, that we have issues. In fact, last week you guys seemed to enjoy telling one another that the person next to you had issues. Right? You could tell them again right now if you wanted to. It would be appropriate to say it again. Um, but, but this idea that all of us are included in this. Here's the other thing I want you to make note of. It's past tense. It's past tense. We ourselves were once these things. This was true of us at some point. He's saying, but it's not true of us today. It's not defining of us today because of the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, some of you might be sitting here today and you can't look 
to a point in time in your life where you've turned from sin and towards Christ. And so maybe this is true of you today. And your response to that isn't to be crushed by that. Your response to that is to turn towards Christ and allow him to wash away your sins and and to free you from the bondage and the captivity of sin, which we're going to see explicitly here in just a moment. We get to verse 4. But remembers our former condition. In fact, just briefly, we'll run through these. We're foolish. We were foolish. We didn't understand who God was. We didn't understand who we were. We didn't understand our sinfulness. We were disobedient, right? We did our own thing, rejected God's laws and commands. We were led astray, being led away from the truth. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Do you know that you're, every single one of us is a slave to something? You know that, right? If you want to spiritualize that concept, you could say that all of us are worshipers of something. But we are all slaves to something. We are all worshipers of something. You will either be a worshiper of yourself or of Christ. And there was a point in time in our life where we were slaves to our passions and pleasures. How about this line? Passing our days in malice and envy. What'd you do today, honey? Not much. What about you? Oh, I hated everyone and I was jealous of everything they had. Oh, that's great. What's for dinner? It's how we lived our lives. Malice and envy. And then he presses that idea a little bit further. He says, hated by others and hating one another. We pursued hatred. This is a scathing reality of us all. And again, maybe the specifics in your life are different. Maybe you weren't led astray. Maybe you weren't malicious and envious. Maybe you were a liar. Maybe you were an adulterer. Maybe you were a thief. Maybe you were self-righteous. Maybe you were cold-hearted, right? We go on and on and on. The, 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 The point being is that we remember our former condition. And the reason we remember our former condition is it's so important because there, there's some things that begin to show up in our lives when this happens. In fact, make note of these three things. This is what happens when we remember our former condition. First of all is humility begins to show up inside of us. Humility begins to show up. All of a sudden we realize we're not as great as we thought we were. Right? We're not looking at Jesus like, man, so lucky to have me on your team. Christ, you're welcome. Right? Like that's not happening, is it? All of a sudden we're like, man, I shouldn't be on this team. I'm the one who's so blessed and lucky. And see, when humility shows up, what it puts to death is self-righteousness. I quit thinking I'm better than others. I quit looking at others who are outside um, the the community of faith as if they're somehow less or inferior to me. And, And what it does is when I see that is I just thank God for his redemptive work in my life. Humility shows up. Secondly, vulnerability shows up. We're honest. I think this has been one of the greatest places where the church in America has just flat out missed it in the last 50 years. We play games in church all the time. We act like we're better off than we actually are. We pretend that that we're healthier than we are. Uh, We act as if sin is not a struggle for us. Uh, We presume that same reality upon others. And then in our quiet moments of the soul, we're crushed because we actually know who we really are. Got to be vulnerable. 
you won't be vulnerable until you own the fact of who you were. That I struggle with these things. I fail in these areas. I, I, I don't know it all. I don't have it all figured. I'm not an expert in everything. I'm actually terrible at all these things. Until we're willing to own that reality, we're going to get to this place. I made a statement to the boys this week. I was driving them to school one morning, and I just made a statement. I said, this has been the most demanding year of my life. I've been exposed. God has exposed so many failures within me. God has exposed so many inadequacies within me. And yet I would suggest to you that this has also been one of the richest years of my life. Because Christ has become greater and more glorious and more necessary for me. Not that he wasn't those things. I just actually get it a little bit more. I found it to just be so freeing to lean into the struggles and difficulties and just be honest about the fact that I'm very broken and flawed and don't have my act together than it is to pretend that I'm someone who I'm actually not. Loved ones, can we quit playing games in church? Can we quit pretending like we've got it all together? Can we quit acting like, oh, I don't struggle with anything? Yes, you do. Let me help you with that. Yes, you do. God help us, right? God help us that we would be vulnerable. Humility shows up, vulnerability shows up, and then urgency shows up. Because when I realize I can't do it, when I realize how broken I am and how honest I am, I realize that the gospel is the only thing that I've got. It's the only hope that I have. And that's where Paul moves Titus 2 in verse 4 and following. And so an ordered mission, right? An ordered mission reminds us of our responsibilities. It, re- it remembers our former condition. And then here, some of the most glorious truths in all the world. It repeats the message of God's salvation. An ordered mission will repeat the message of God's salvation. I'll just tell you that verses 4 uh, through 7, this is something that God is commanding us to share with others. This is something that we have to preach to one another as the church. And I'll just tell you, this is something you've got to preach to yourself. You've got to preach this truth over and over and over again to yourself. I think, I think that this week has been one of the richest weeks for me maybe ever with respect to sermon prep. Because over and over and over again, I read verses 4 through 7 and had the gospel preached to myself over and over and over again. And it's been so life-giving. And, and for, for many of the people in the room, we're, we're going to read verses 4 through 7, um, and there is nothing new by way of information that you're going to hear. But let me just say this. If we read these verses, you should be blown away at the glorious truths that are showing up here. If you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. What else? I don't think you get it. Like, honestly, I don't think you get and grasp the gospel. I'm not saying that you're not regenerate. I'm not saying that you're not saved. I'm just saying, I don't think you really get it. Because after 10 million years in eternity, if someone says the gospel to you, I think we're going to go, woo! All right, because we're still so fired up about it. The gospel is eternally gripping. And so if you come to this place where you're like, yeah, it's kind of old hat or it's boring or eh, it's not as good as it once was, that says nothing about the gospel. But I think it says an awful lot about the state of our heart. So here we go. 
And maybe you're sitting here going, I, well, I don't really know what you're talking about. Let me just say this. You're going to hear the most glorious truths that have ever been presented to mankind. The message of God's salvation. Notice I've got five things here in verses four through seven. First of all, this in verse four, but I love that word, but there, the contrast to verse three, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared. A right, part of God's salvation is realizing that it's the appearance of God's goodness and kindness. Salvation begins, it originates with the goodness and loving kindness of our God. Did you know it's in God's nature to be kind to the lost? Did you know that? In fact, here, here, I mean, not only do we see this here in Titus 3, let me just give you a few other places in the scriptures where we see this truth. Luke 6.35, Jesus says this, Love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Listen, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Ephesians 2 tells us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, makes us alive and raises us up through Christ. This is on the heels of telling us all the ways that we had rejected and rebelled against God. And then Paul actually tells us in the book of Romans that it's God's kindness that leads us or prompts us towards repentance. He says this in Romans 2, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It is solely the goodness and kindness of God that you and I are saved. Because because the moment, the moment that sin entered into the equation, God could have walked away. He could have blown this whole thing up. He said, forget that mess and, and ran away. But it was his goodness and his kindness that compelled him to act on our behalf. It's what we're told in Lamentations that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His goodness and his kindness towards us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, look at these next three words. Oh, boy. He saved us. He saved us. Not, just in case you're wondering, not because you brought anything to the table, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You could actually suggest in spite of no works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy, right, it's the effect of God's mercy. Paul makes clear God is the one who did this. God is the one who is working this out. It wasn't because you and I did something. We brought nothing to the table outside of sin. And in spite of our sin, said, God said, let me, let me work in this. He saved us. From what? From feeling down and bummed out? From being poor and unhealthy? No, he saved us from the wrath and the judgment of God. We don't talk about that aspect of God enough. We don't hear enough about that. And we have this misconception that because God is loving, listen to me, because God is loving, he can't possibly be a God of wrath or judgment. And, and my question is, where in the world do you get that? Like, where do we get that? Let me try to illustrate this. If you were to come over to my house and um, say, met out front and you walked into my garage and you grabbed a shovel and you broke it and you drove over it, what would my response to that be? Well, I'd probably be like, you're weird. And the next time you're coming over, I'm shutting the garage door. Maybe I'm not even answering the door. Okay, but I just go buy another shovel. But if you came into my home 
and you tried to play that game with my wife or you tried to play that game with my children, does my love for them compel me to do nothing or does it compel me to act? In what? Kindness? Hey, that's cool. Punch him again. I love you. Yeah, that ain't happening, is it? I will respond in wrath because you are attempting to harm my most treasured possession. So why would God be any different when we attack and violate and come against his most treasured possession? We've got this mistaken notion that God, God's not going to do anything. No, he saved us from his wrath and his judgment that we so rightfully deserved. But according to his mercy... See, sometimes we confuse the concepts of grace and mercy. Grace is, I am given something that I don't deserve. It's a gift and it's a kindness. Mercy is that I don't get what I do deserve, which is wrath and judgment for sin. And so God's mercy is that I don't get what I deserved, and instead what I receive is grace and goodness and kindness. That's insane. That this is God's response to us, the effect of his mercy. And then notice what flows out of that. Firstly, this, the washing of regeneration. So there's two things that are going on here with respect to the washing of regeneration. One is this concept of washing. God purifies us. He cleanses us. He takes the dirty, filthy reality of sin that corrupts us, and he cleans us in that. But not only that... Not only does he purify us, but then regeneration implies this new birth. That I'm given a new life. Think of John 3 and Jesus with Nicodemus. You're born again. Think of 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Loved one, you're new. You're new. You're, you're, not, you're not wearing some other outfit. You don't put on a mask. This isn't some other cover. You are an entirely new entity and creation. The washing of regeneration. And he says this, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, if regeneration is the starting point for new life, renewal is what emerges from that. And it comes through the Holy Spirit. It's poured out upon us. Right, the fullness of this new life coming through the Spirit. Now, now look at what he says in verse 6. The renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us sparingly, moderately, adequately, no, I didn't say those words, what does it say? Richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me try to illustrate this. Jason, come here real quick, buddy. Come here. So Jason is one of my twin sons. Okay? You have one job. It is to face these people and smile. (laughs) And you become the object of blessing. Now, a lot of times what we think... Don't you try to steal the spotlight here, buddy. I'm messing with you. So what we think, what we think of when we think of the Holy Spirit is we think God does something like this, right? He's got his little, his little dropper. Actually, there's no water left in this, so I think you're safe. Okay, no, just look out. And it's like this very moderate, sparing, bloop. Now, just in case you're wondering, a slight drop of the Holy Spirit would be sufficient because God is more than sufficient. But this is, we think that God gives sparingly. Or we think that God gives moderately. Stay right there. Here's a better way of how God gives. 
Okay, you ready for this here? Now, let me tell you what's happening. The deacons are having a heart attack right now because I've got a huge bucket of water all around the election. I'm not really going to do this. But I will meet you in the parking lot as soon as church is over, all right? Sit down. You can go. But you can imagine, right? You can imagine for a moment what that would feel like. This, think of sitting under a waterfall. That's how the Spirit is poured out upon us. God's not measured. He's not like, no, he's like, I'm going to give you the fullness of that. Overflowing and abundant. And all of this points us to this just insane conclusion. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God makes us his kids. God makes us his children. That we have the full right, we have the full inclusion with God as our father. This is utterly insane. God takes strangers and makes them his children. He says in the book of Hosea, he says, say to not my people that I'm going to make them my people. Here's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. children of God. I mean, this reality is right in front of Becky and I because on Tuesday this week, there is a little girl who does not have any of my DNA. She does not have any of Becky's DNA. She doesn't share our ethnicity. There is no biological connection that we share with her. But that little girl will be my daughter in the same way that Kara is my daughter. And this simply mimics or imitates what God does with us. See, because I'm not Jewish. I have no line in Christ. I don't have any particular right. I certainly don't have the resources or the righteousness to say, I should be one of your children. But because of Christ's work, he takes a stranger, he takes a foreigner, takes one who is not worthy and says, you are my son. You are my daughter. And loved one, if you are in Christ, He says that same thing to you. This is the glorious truth. This is, I mean, this is the crescendo of the whole biblical story. That God takes people that aren't his and makes them his own. This is the message of salvation that we share. God's goodness and kindness, his effect of mercy, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then he makes us children of his. He finishes with this brief warning. I kind of wish he just ended the letter right there. But he's like, hey, one other thing. 
And it really serves to amplify what we just talked about. But look at verses 9 through 11 just briefly. This warning, final warning. Because as glorious as verses 4 through 8 are. See, Paul understands that even in that we can still get distracted from primary things. That we too can be distracted from the greatness and the glory of God's wonderful gospel. So he says this in verse 9, 10, and 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And an ordered mission will reject distractions from grace. See, if we're really going to be on mission, we're going to, we're going to make the primary thing the primary thing. We're not going to be distracted from, from, from what is um, the, the most crucial aspect of the mission which is the gospel and the grace of Christ. Now, he's not saying that we're conflict avoidant or that, hey, peace at all costs, or I'm going to forego my convictions so that we can pretend like we all agree, but we actually can't stand where we actually arrive. He's saying we're not going to be deterred. We're not going to be distracted. We're not going to be taken off mission from this beautiful, glorious truth of the gospel. So we reject distractions from grace. Two things specifically. The first is this. We uh, avoid divisive issues. We avoid divisive issues. Now, he's not saying that we're afraid to talk about hard things. He's saying that we're not deterred by things of secondary importance. Here's the point. He said the emphasis is on the gospel of God's grace. And if we're arguing about these secondary issues, if we're arguing about these peripheral issues, if they don't drive us back to the gospel of God's grace, then we're off course. Let me press this a little bit further. Healthy theology, a healthy study of theology, a healthy engagement with doctrine will always push you back to the gospel. It will always push you back there. So you find yourself arguing with someone about something. It's like, man, I, I can't even remember the last time that this was pushing us back to the gospel. You, you, you're in a divisive issue. And I think as Christians, we waste far too much time arguing over things that we can't know for certain at the expense of reveling and enjoying and sharing what can be known with great certainty. We avoid divisive issues and then we avoid divisive people. We avoid divisive people. Look at what he says. As for a person, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Well, that doesn't seem very Christianly. Yes, it does. It's in the Bible. There it is. I don't know what else you want me to do with this. Pretend like it's not here. But the same way that we would avoid issues that divide, we're told to avoid people that divide. And he tells us why. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. A person who looks to divide is warped and sinful. They don't get, they don't grasp, they don't understand the fullness of the gospel. So if you find yourself maybe potentially in a situation like this, just ask yourself, is, is the person looking to bring unity and peace or is the person looking to bring division and discord? And if it's the latter, walk away. And the reason for that is we're not going to be distracted. We're not going to be taken off course from the ministry of the gospel of grace. And an ordered mission will reject distractions from grace. Loved ones, we are to live in a way that elevates God's mercy, recalling what he has done for us, what he has saved us from, what he has spared us from. In this ordered mission, we're reminded of our responsibilities. We remember our former condition. We're going to repeat the message of God's salvation. We're going to reject distractions from grace. 
This is what the church in order moving out to the world looks like. And God help us, God help us, God help us that Faith Church would be a church like this. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be men and women who long to make much of you. We pray that you would help us to be a church that is on mission. We pray that you would help us to uh, live in a manner and a way that first and foremost recalls your glorious work on our behalf. And then, God, that's manifested in a variety of other ways in our lives, but we pray that we would start there. Would you help us to be reminded of your goodness and kindness? Would you help us to remember that you have saved us through your mercy? Would you help us to recall the washing of regeneration? God, would you help us to know that we are renewed in the spirit and not in some measured, moderate way, but this this abundance, this excess that you bring for us? And then, God, would you help us to remember that we're your children, that you make us your children, and that we would live accordingly. Jesus, we thank you for the work that you are doing. We pray that we would be a church that lives and functions in this way. And we thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name.